This story that I'm going to read to you talks about why goodwill is so important and what harm there is that comes when goodwill is forsaken. I'm thinking about the children whose graves are being found. And I'm thinking, I'm contemplating a lot these days how forsaken were those children and how forsaken was the goodwill of the people that maltreated them and caused them to suffer so much. And the suffering doesn't end. We bear that suffering. We bear the shame of it. It's a moral shame. And we have a grave moral predicament and a moral imperative to not forsake goodwill. Goodwill has the power to purify those who practice it. It is an empowerment. More than anything, people think that weapons give them power. The greatest weapon that we could possibly practice, perfect, and apply is this kind of goodwill of the heart, this way of goodwill. So this is why sila is the foundation of our practice, as we realize that we are moral beings. We are only human as much as we are moral. If we lose our morality, we are not true humans. And the other beauty of this development of morality is that it gives us the way to free ourselves from all harm. It's the practice of this path of awakening through sila, through the development of the mind and through that the development of wisdom. This is all because we are able to purify the heart and practice a a consummate level of goodwill. And goodness is the heart of it. It's the beginning of it and it is the end of it. There is no end of it but it is the goal of this path, is the perfection of this goodwill. And the perfection of this goodwill is the ending of suffering. So I will read this little story to you and you'll see why it's so important, what it points us back to. From the time before the Lord Buddha gained awakening, 
until he entered total Nibbana, he practiced this metta in all his actions and all his mental workings. Everything that he taught was based on this. And so we have to also remember that this is the way of peace and this is how the Buddha trained his monastics. During the time of the Buddha, there was a king who was returning home with his troops after he had engaged in battle. On the way, they stopped off in a cool, quiet forest to rest. And there, there was water to drink and they could bathe. And in the forest, they happened to come across a group of 500 monks, approximately, who were practicing metta meditation. They were using the practice of metta to concentrate, to focus the mind. And the monks had a very quiet demeanor. They were completely silent, not making any sound at all. And this surprised the king. He said to himself, even in a single household of two or three people, there are quarrels and commotion. But here, these contemplatives are living together in the hundreds, and there is no movement between them at all. He thought, if our country could be at peace like this, there wouldn't be any need for war. He was so impressed that he went to the head monk, the Buddha, and bowed down, and he asked to be taught what is this practice that these monks are doing. Then, after listening to the Buddha's advice, he sent his troops back to the capital but he himself stayed in the forest and he continued to practice metta meditation for 12 years until he was able to completely master the jhanas. Only then did he return to his capital. Immediately on his return, he made a practice of spreading thoughts of metta, of goodwill, in every direction throughout his kingdom and to the neighboring kingdoms as well. His people came thronging around him. They were happy and joyful and filled with respect for this king. And when he spoke to them, they told him of their hardships and their joys. And he taught them how to do this practice of goodwill, of compassion, of appreciation, and of equanimity for one another. So goodwill, as we know, is one of the four sublime abidings. And this king had learned how to do these practices, and he taught them to all that came to him. His citizens were captivated 
by his teaching. They developed even more respect and trust in him and followed his instructions. And from that time onwards, throughout their kingdom, in every home and village, love and kindness spread, giving rise to friendship, to fellowship, and to a cooperation. There were no more wars with their neighbors, and the people lived in happiness and peace. So this happened during the time of the Buddha, and we wonder, could this ever happen now? Whether it would or not, we need to think where to begin. Where should we begin? Should we rush to the capital city and protest on the steps of parliament with signs of goodwill, goodwill, goodwill? No, probably not. <laughs> because it's not about protest. The real protest is within us, is to go to the present moment as we've been doing and to spread our attention here and now in our own hearts with goodwill to ourselves, to whatever is arising within our consciousness. We spread, we radiate, we permeate the heart with goodwill. If we cannot do this for ourselves and do it fully and truly and learn the riches of that type of activity, how can we possibly convince anybody else of its power? We must practice it ourselves and we must practice with others who do this and create around us a field of so much trust and brightness and safety that other people will come close. The fragrance of that radiates in all directions of its own. The more we say, the less people will listen. The more we agitate, the less people will trust. But if we ourselves are unagitated, and if we exude a perfume of peace and well-being, that will attract attention in and of itself. We can look at the Buddha as an example of that. The king was so mystified by the silence of the monastic gathering, by their stillness. A king coming back from battle, waging war and being successful in his mission, coming in front of people who had renounced the world, given up the world, and were sitting and meditating to such an extent that he joined them for 12 years. Well, we may not get results like that, but it doesn't matter. We're not looking for results. But that we should not leave aside the most powerful weapon of all but we should polish it, practice it, and realize the strength of it in our own lives. <laughs> 
This we must do. There is so much to be said about metta practice. And throughout the day today, I would like to go more and more into this conversation. But right now, I want to hear from you. I want to know what you think about this. And why or why not can you do this? Can you say? It's always aspirational to practice metta, but sometimes it's very, very tough to spread goodwill to people who have harmed yourself. And that's a challenge. <laughs> Thank you for speaking. That in itself takes a lot of courage. Yes, we're talking about thousands, potentially, of little children being murdered in our own contemporary world and in most recent decades since, I believe, since the what, 1800s, the school, residential schools began. But this is not new to the world. This is not new to human society. There has been murder, atrocity, horrors committed between human beings forever. And yes, if somebody is pointing a knife at you or attacking you, if people are acting unskillfully, even if people are asking things that are not to be asked to that extent, one can feel disarmed. One can feel incompetent in the area of practicing forgiveness or kindness to that kind of energetic assault on us. But all the more reason why we need to make haste to strengthen ourselves so that we don't fall into responses which degrade us more than what is being brought to us, our response must not degrade our moral purity. So if we engage in mental or physical anger, then we are degrading our own moral purity. That's the truth of it. So that's why we have precepts. We have precepts about speech and about action. We don't have, in the five precepts, there are no precepts about intention or thought. But this is why the meditation practice is so important, because it helps us to strengthen the mind by constantly bringing within the mind the forces of wholesomeness and abandoning the forces of unwholesomeness, the mind learns where its true home is. And the more and more the mind learns where its true home is, the more it rushes there. A friend of ours told us yesterday 
that he was with his roommate and his roommate was not able to talk to him because he was getting distracted by the television. So he excused himself to go and watch the TV. The friend invited him to watch and he said, no, I'm just going to focus on my body. That would be much better for me to watch my body than to watch TV. And so the friend said to him, thank you. I never thought of that. He's a, apparently a very, very genius type of person who is interested in the Dhamma, but maybe not knowing too much about it. But the suggestion that he received was, well, you don't have to go watch TV if you're restless. Why don't you just stay present? Go to the body. And if we can't find the breath or find a thought of kindness for the person who is attacking us verbally or we are having very angry thoughts towards them because we have a bad memory about them, why can't we go to the body and feel our bodily sensations and help to neutralize what is happening in the mind or what kind of feelings, energies are rushing towards doing harm to someone or speaking wildly, unkindly to someone. Let our lips be shut and go to that feeling of tension in the body just as a starting point. A starting point to help neutralize unskillful action. That's a starting point. We have to start with the starting point. We can't start in the middle. And when things are difficult, then we have to find the quickest, easiest place to save us or rescue us from something that could easily catapult us into a harmful comic situation. So then we end up practicing unkindness. And we think it's unintentional. But actually, it's because the mind is still weak. And we have a lot of work to do before we can stand up to the maras that life keeps bringing in front of us. And that's why we call this practice. Practice every day. Life gives us so many opportunities to practice, but we have to remember, hey, this is a... Yeah, don't go to the TV. Stay with the body. Stay with boredom. Don't run with restlessness. Study the hindrance at its root and give it a huge ground in which to be diluted. Because if we focus on the hindrance, we'll be lost. We'll be carried away by the tidal wave of it. We have to bring ourselves back to the edge of the ocean where it meets the sand, where we can stand with our feet just touching the water. We won't drown there. We'll drown if we go too deep, too fast in what we can't navigate.
I find for myself, it is easier to focus on any individual, but when I try to generate meta for the world as a whole, that's when I start to fall down. Thank you for sharing that with us. You're not the only one that I've heard that from. And I'd like to suggest that it's really important to practice metta to oneself first. It's not just a matter of repeating words or mentally focusing on somebody else, but it's a heart practice. And when we're trying to develop... I'm speaking out of the scriptures now. It's not really an opinion. But I've, I've noticed this in myself and in people I've lived and practiced with, that it's very easy to believe that we're practicing goodwill. But sometimes what we think we perceive to be a practice of goodwill is very head-based. If we're really practicing it, we can find out if we do this practice towards ourselves and direct it towards our own being, like viscerally, not as a, not thinking goodwill, but sitting quietly, emptying the mind and wishing ourselves well and really filling the heart up with a sense of well-being and a celebration. It's a joyful feeling, a heartwarming feeling, a feeling the goodness through and through. And that requires a lot of forgiveness, a lot of not holding things against the world or against others who may have harmed us. It's a very deep practice. It's not an easy thing to do, but if we can generate even a little bit of that kind of goodwill towards ourselves, then we turn the mind towards someone else. And usually we start with somebody who has been really kind to us. And the reason is because we can think good thoughts to everyone individually. We can do that. But to actually generate and radiate a sense of goodwill to somebody who has not been kind to us, that is much more difficult to do. And it takes quite a bit of working in gradually, this is a gradual training, but working little by little, first towards ourselves, then towards someone that is really, really dear to us, a teacher, a parent, a best friend, uh, someone we deeply admire, and then eventually to a neutral person. Because how do you develop that kind of warmth and a real loving feeling towards someone you don't know at all. And then to develop that towards someone who has harmed you, that is considered the most difficult of all. So it's not just radiating, like sending out thoughts. Oh, may you be well, may you be happy. We can do this in a way that is quite routine. It's like, clean the dishes, wash the dishes. They're done, they're clean. But the purification of the heart is a much more profound cleansing 
and to really cleanse out feelings of ill will that may, may be disguised in so many ways, including by social conditioning. I must not feel that, so it, it can be subversive, hidden. We must not underestimate the extent to which those feelings are hidden. Therefore, the quality or our, our ability to really pervade goodwill in the direction of others, if we are really able to do that, we would practice this goodwill in a deep and profound way and spread it directionally. I think this might be one of the reasons why in the early texts, the directional method is very much prescribed. Like, may all beings be well to the north, to the south, to the east, to the west. And in our more, maybe latter-day ways of practicing metta, it's using this individual, starting with yourself, then to the most beloved, the friend, the neutral person, the enemy, etc. So it would be good to investigate more what is the deep feeling that we have within us when we're practicing and that needs to be investigated. Sometimes practicing in a group we're encouraged to get guidance and instruction and it's good to bring that forth to the teacher and question it and see how much metta we are able to direct inwards to ourselves. Really check on that. When I first learned how to do this metta practice, I was working for the United Nations, and one of my colleagues was very jealous. She wanted my job, and she used to try to get me in trouble and get me fired so that she could take my job. So I was going to a temple at that time and I asked the teacher what I could do about this situation. So he said, I know what you should do. You should practice metta. And he taught me how to do it. So I happily went back to work and every day I used to practice metta towards this person. After a few weeks I went to him and he said, how's it going? And I said, not very well. She's still very mean to me and on and on and on. And he laughed. He said, you're not doing it right. You shouldn't be doing metta so that other people will be nice to you. But it is without any desire for any result. It is an unconditional sense of goodwill and wishing others well, no matter how they treat you. In the simile of the saw in the Majjhima Nikaya, the Buddha describes how an arahant was attacked by bandits and they were testing his patience and they were sawing off his limbs one by one. Are you still patient? And he never wavered from his loving kindness towards them. And so this is unthinkable for most of us, but that's the kind of example that's given in the scriptures of a, a loving kindness that is unshakable. So 
We have a lot of work to do. Yeah, even to the people that have done so much harm in the world, we have to trust in kama. They, they're going to suffer. We can't work out their kama for them. But if we sit wishing evil things to other people, we harm ourselves, that's for sure. Good morning, Aya. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about using metta in our attitudes towards illness. The most important thing is the health of the mind. We're all mentally ill. We are all mentally ill. Our illness varies in degrees, but all of us are so caught up with physical well-being, and we refuse to acknowledge that these bodies are impermanent, subject to old age sickness and to decay and death. So in the same way, we know that the body is impermanent, and we know that we should have kind thoughts to others, but we don't really know it until we know it. I say that I'm not afraid of dying. But the other day, when someone was here helping us and they said there was a bear seen near our mailbox, we walk up and down to our cabins in the woods every day in the dark, and we sometimes use our bear bells, and, or we chant. So the bear becomes this symbol of terrible danger. But in fact, we are in terrible danger already. We don't need a bear to tell us what kind of danger we're in. Death can come at any moment. We don't need a bear to remind us how vulnerable we are. But I was glad that there was the bear to remind me because we think these things. I know this body is impermanent. I'm 71 years old. I should know it really well by now. We have to get it at a deeper level. There's so many things that we can be fearful of that we cannot have goodwill towards. But the most important thing is to see the condition of the mind. In that moment, what is arising in this mind? What suffering is coming up now? So in this moment, the mind is like this. How do we heal that? How do we bring peace to that moment? How do we bring non-fear and non anger to this moment so that the mental illness will change little by little and the mind can get stronger. At the moment of death, we need that strength. The body will never be cured. The body will never be fully well, but that's not the project. The project for this life is to make the mind whole and well. And the healing of the mind is far more important than the health of the body. So, yeah, maybe we won't be able to go and do what we wanted to do, to be as joyful as we want. But in this moment, can we not harbor resentful thoughts? Can we not harbor fearful thoughts? Can we bring the mind to a sense of 
knowing the fear, because the knowing of the fear is not afraid. That's a moment of health, a moment of freedom. Freedom from fear, for one moment, teaches the mind where that freedom can be found. It can't be found in a concept. So the more of these moments of peace, moments of goodwill, moments of generosity, generosity to ourselves brings generosity to others, and kindness to, to ourselves brings kindness to others. I mean, all these little formulae help us to see how we can foster a greater mental health. And mental health inevitably involves sacrifice. We have to give up not being able to go or participate. So I realize more and more I just have to let the world go. The world is asking things that I cannot provide. So I have to say no. You know, to protect the sanctity of the practice here and what we're doing here, we have to let go more and more. And how can I make peace with that? Well, I can do what I can do as well as I can do it and not grumble about it and not fret for a moment and then teach the mind not fretting. Simplicity and a purity and an honesty with one moment is at least that. And then I build on that. So that might not solve the problem or answer the question, but we must be real with what's coming up and bring the practice to that directly and fully as much as we can. That's making sacred. Sacredness is... It can be one breath, a sacred one breath. One good breath of being fully present, fully aware. And that conditions another breath like that. So, yeah, the body is not going to do so well. But if we're angry at the body, that's the second arrow. So we pull it out. And it goes back in and we pull it out. And it comes in another way and we pull it out. We just keep pulling up and making sacred. Pulling forth the sanctity that is within the heart. And we might not think that's enough, but that is everything. Hiya. I have a question. It's Vanessa. And I wonder if you could make um, some comments on the difference between I mean, I, I know the difference, but the comments between compassion and goodwill, I find that um, often, instead of giving, I sort of think, well, I'm going to get meta to this situation, and I tend to go to compassion, um, I, because I see all sides. I see the side of the sufferer, and I see the side of the inflictor of the suffering, and I feel great compassion. In, in a whole, in the whole sense. So I find that meta doesn't. I'd like to know. Like so, I end up sort of just feeling this compassion instead of 
doing better. One should know that goodwill is in every wholesome thought. Every wholesome mind movement has goodwill in, in it. And we, we are so full of critical mind. We're so full of judgment and opinions. Well, most of our opinions and judgments are bereft of goodwill. Goodwill is hard to sustain. So first we learn to sustain goodwill. And it's easy to sustain like, you know, this graduated practice of sustaining goodwill to people we love, uh, to ourselves, and that's the hardest one sometimes. But we've got to start here. If we don't learn it from here, we're, we're not really practicing goodwill, we're just thinking. And it's more than just thinking, it's the heart goodwill. It's like a, a fuel, a heat, an energy, not just a conceptual little mind moment, like one, one molecule, brain molecule to another. It isn't, it's not intellectual, it's from the heart. So goodwill is a heart action. Compassion is a more graduated, real compassion. This is where we're going. We're going towards the perfection of compassion. For me, freedom, the freedom of this path, the total freedom of a human being, is one who has consummated wisdom and compassion, both. So the, the ability for us to feel compassion, that is not where we start usually. When you practice the four sublime abidings, you start with goodwill. And we kind of graduate to compassion. And compassion is, well, when somebody is suffering, you feel bad for them. Passion is you feel it with them. You're actually feeling their pain, but you're feeling it with a sense of, may you be free from that because it's so unbearable to know that someone else is in su such pain. It's, it's the unbearable, you know that, they're, that it's unbearable for them, so you wish them freedom from that. But if we do that intellectually, it's meaningless. But if we do it from the heart, it's a true, deep practice. And to do that fully, is to be able to do that without falling into despair over the suffering. 